0: You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JcastNetwork.org. So as the uh, New Year approaches, I'm sure you've been following, as I have, uh, all of the different Ways that in uh, the media we commemorate the year that has passed and anticipate the year that that is coming. So there's all sorts of, you know, retrospectives that happen. I was just listening. uh, I listened when I run to Terry Gross's podcast, the Fresh Air podcast. And they did the 10 best and worst movies and the 10 best and worst TV shows. And you've seen these on the news. They, you know, recount all the news stories from the past year. Think that or miss about the year that's past, and talk about the uh, year that's coming up, anticipate the year that's coming up. And as I think about the year that's past, my first thought isn't usually to the news stories that have uh, broken over the past year. The place that I often turn to when I seek to kind of process where I am and where maybe I should be going is Torah. And uh, I was studying this week's Torah portion, Parshat Vayigash, which we uh, just read. And, as I mentioned in the uh, brief opening remarks, it continues the dramatic story of Joseph and his brothers. So as a brief recap, Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. His brothers uh, are resentful of the fact that he is the favorite son of Jacob, so they Decide to kill that. To decide to kill him, and then cooler heads prevail, and they decide not to kill him, but rather to sell him into slavery. And in fact, it is uh, the brother Judah who says, "Let's sell him into slavery." Even after the brother Reuben says, "Let's not. Uh, let's not kill him." Judah's an important figure. He'll come up again in this week's Torah portion. So Joseph gets sold into slavery, gets sold down into Egypt. He ends up working for an aristocrat in Egypt named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, takes a liking to Joseph, and Joseph refuses her advances. But he hesitates. (laughs) But he hesitates, but ultimately refuses her advances, which uh, upsets Mrs. Potiphar. So Mrs. Potiphar has it arranged so that Joseph gets thrown into prison. And while Joseph is in prison, he meets two important people who are also prisoners. Pharaoh's chief baker and Pharaoh's chief wine steward. And the chief baker and chief wine steward, while they're in prison, have dreams that they have trouble interpreting and they keep them awake at night. And so they happen to become conversing with Joseph and Joseph says, maybe I can interpret your dreams for you. And so he interprets their dreams And lo and behold, his interpretations are exactly right, and they come true. Unfortunately for the baker, his dream meant that he was going to be executed by Pharaoh, but fortunately for the wine steward, his dream meant that he was going to be reinstated to his position by Pharaoh. And when he goes back up to Pharaoh's palace, he promises Joseph that he would remember him to Pharaoh. He forgets him. Until Pharaoh himself has some dreams that need interpreting, and none of Pharaoh's advisors are able to interpret his dreams. And all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off in the wine steward's head says, I know a guy who's good at interpreting dreams. He's sitting in jail. So Pharaoh brings this Hebrew up, showers him, shaves him, gets him dressed in nice clothes, brings him to Pharaoh's palace and says, here are the dreams that I've been having, and Joseph correctly interprets the dreams, predicts that there will be seven years of plenty in Egypt that will be followed by seven years of famine so severe that Egypt will forget that there were ever seven years of plenty. And the meaning of the dream, Joseph said, is To save up during the seven years of plenty so there will be enough food to go around during the seven years of famine. And that's precisely what happens. And as a result of his wisdom and foresight, Joseph is installed as the second in command over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. The famine hits. It hits the entire region, not just Egypt, including the land of Israel where Joseph's brothers and father are living. And Jacob, Joseph's father, tells the brothers to go down to Egypt because he hears that it's the one place on earth that still has food. So he sends the brothers on a mission to Egypt to go and get food, And when they get there, the person that they're supposed to go see, the person in charge of food distribution is Joseph. Except for they don't know it's Joseph because he doesn't look like Joseph. He looks just like some Egyptian royal. But he knows it's his brothers. And so Joseph plans a ruse. First, he accuses the brothers of being spies. Spies. And he says to them, if you're not spies, then what I want you to do is go back to the land of Israel and bring to me your youngest brother, who you say is named Benjamin. Bring me this youngest brother so that I know for fact that your brothers and your story is accurate. The brothers don't want to get Benjamin because now that Joseph is presumed dead by Jacob, Benjamin is Joseph's favorite son. Jacob's favorite son. Jacob doesn't want to send Benjamin, but the brothers go back and say, the only way he's going to give us the food and release our brother Shimon, who he's put in prison, is by bringing Benjamin. So they bring Benjamin. And finally, they bring Benjamin down to Egypt, and Joseph meets him and says, now I know you're not spies, and I'm happy to give you the food. So he gives them the food, they fill up their sacks, and they head out on their way, but Joseph's ruse is not over. He places his royal silver goblet in Benjamin's bag. And as they're leaving Egypt, he has his guards stop the brothers on their way and say, "Someone stole said, "Someone stole my silver goblet from my palace." And the brothers say, "None of us are a thief." feel free to search all of our bags, not knowing that Joseph had placed the goblet in Benjamin's bag. They search the bags, and lo and behold, they find the goblet in Benjamin's. And so Joseph has Benjamin put under arrest to languish in jail in Egypt. That's where we left off last week, with the brothers anxious and confused about what to do, torn because they know that if they go back to their father without their brother Benjamin, their father might die of grief, having lost not only his first favorite son, but now his second one as well. So here's what happens in this week's Torah portion. This is why I had you guys think about the question of what was it that made Joseph ultimately reveal himself to his brothers? Because one brother steps up Judah. Remember the same brother who was the instigator of the plan to sell Joseph into slavery. And Judah is the one who steps up and steps forward to this great and powerful ruler in Egypt and begs him for his brother Benjamin's life. And not only begs him for his brother Benjamin's life, but says to him, I will place myself in your prison, in Benjamin's stead, just as long as we can send Benjamin back to his father in the land of Israel. It's an act of selflessness and brotherhood and of tshuva, of return, of repentance on Judah's behalf being in the same situation he was in before, but making in some ways the exact opposite choice. He could have just sold his brother out and gone back home. They would have had their food. It would have been fine. But Judah decides to step up and sacrifice, risk sacrificing himself in order to save his brother Benjamin. And he says this phrase, which is the phrase that ultimately makes Joseph break down in tears and reveal himself to his brothers. He says, How can I go back up to my father and have the youth not with me? How can I go back up to my father without my little brother? How can I stand before my father and look him in the eye and say, I promised you that I would take care of your son, my brother. And now he's languishing in an Egyptian jail while I'm coming back with sackfuls of food to give to us to survive this famine. How can I stand before you and look you in the eye and stand with integrity and honesty in your presence knowing that I did not fulfill my responsibility and my duty to take care of my brother? Whenever I, and that's what makes Joseph break down and reveal himself to his brothers. That act, that moment, that statement. And whenever I read in the Torah, because I never take Torah explicitly, literally. It's not only telling a story or even a historical narrative. It's talking about us today. And so when I read a phrase like, how can I stand before my father without my young brother with me? I think of the metaphor system we have in Judaism. And in Judaism, when we use the word avi, father, who do we more often than not refer to? God. Right? Avinu malkeinu. God is our father, our king. And so if you think about that passage, not only in its context, but also in our lives. How can I stand before my father without my little brother? How can I stand before my father knowing that I didn't fulfill my responsibility of taking care of my brother? We can also apply it to our context in our lives. How can we stand in the presence of God knowing that we are not fulfilling our responsibility of taking care of our little brother, our little sister? And in the Jewish tradition, we know that the circle of who is our brother and sister is a pretty expansive one. The book of Genesis has God create one human being alone. And the mission tells us God creates one human being alone in order to remind us that we all come from the same parent and therefore we are all of us, all humanity, brothers and sisters. How can we stand before our father? without our brother or sister standing beside us? How can we with integrity stand in God's presence without our brother or sister standing beside us? And I think about that phrase as I think of the two police officers in New York who were just murdered in the name of a movement for racial equality and justice. And I say to myself, how can we stand before God without our brothers and our sisters who are police officers standing with us? And I say the same also of the instances in which people of color and minorities are unfairly targeted by the police, which we've seen happen over and over again this year. And I say to myself, how can we stand before our Father without our brother and sister with us. And I think of the thousands of people who are dying or at risk of Ebola in West Africa and in many instances, the failure of the Western world to respond to the crisis in Africa. And I say, how can we stand before our father without our brother or sister with us? And I think about the brutality, the creeping brutality, and the real brutality of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, capturing journalists and targeting minorities and women, and I say, how can we stand before our father without our brother and sister with us? And I think of the 200 schoolgirls who were kidnapped by Boko Haram in Nigeria, and I say, how can we stand before our father without our brother or our sister with us? And I think of the 172 school children who were killed in Pakistan two weeks ago by Taliban militants for the crime of studying in school. And I say, how can we stand before our father without our brother or sister with us? And I think of the... I think of the struggle that we had over this summer in the land of Israel, where, yes, we were in the midst of defending ourselves against horrific and brutal attacks from enemies bent on our destruction, and yet in the process, we're responsible for the deaths of lots of innocent people. And I say, even though war is complex and self-defense is often justified, I still say to myself, how can we stand before our Father without our brother and sister with us? This has been an incredibly difficult and challenging year. You turn on the news and it is relentless. Of the crises and injustices and oppressions and wars that exist in the world, and in many ways, the callous response of so many of us of just going about our daily lives because, in the end, it's all white noise, talking heads in the background on 24 hour TV. And I say, in 2015, how can we stand before our Father without our brothers? sisters standing with us. I'm inspired by Temple Beth El because I've seen in this community our profound commitment to precisely that value, to precisely the value that Judah exemplifies when he stands up in the presence of Joseph. We had congregants this year of their own volition and own initiative wrapped up the food that was left over from Smachot from bar mitzvahs, etc., and packed it up and brought it to the median Monroe Park. We had so much and so prevalent a participation among our congregation in our week with keratops. This is an incredibly caring and compassionate community that cares about the needs of our brothers and sisters, even if they are not the brothers and sisters who are sitting in this room, or are Jews, or in our immediate circle, or vicinity, or locale. This is a community that cares about the value, asks ourselves, how can we stand before our Father without our brothers or sisters with us? And my prayer for 2015 is that our community here continues to exemplify that value, that our city of Richmond continues to exemplify that value, that it spreads to our nation, to our brothers and sisters in the land of Israel, and to all over the world, because we are all of us brothers and sisters, and we cannot stand for our Father with integrity don't hold each other with us together. Shabbat Shalom.